0: Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to the author of one of the most buzzed-about books of the summer. The book is called Democracy in Chains, and it's by Duke University historian Nancy MacLean. It's a deep dive into the intellectual origins of conservative libertarianism, the you're on your own philosophy that now dominates the Republican Party and increasingly the country. But it's also a story about public education and just how far back the efforts to dismantle it really go mclean's book is a richly researched page turner and i hope that this interview inspires you to read it for yourself just don't blame me if you have to sleep with the lights on nancy mclean thanks for joining me on have you heard i want to begin where democracy in chains does in prince edward county virginia it's several years before the supreme court would hand down the brown versus board of education decision set the stage for us
1: in 1951, some students at, at the high school in Prince Edward County went out on strike, um, and they had a 100% solid strike for a better high school. And it was organized by a young woman named Barbara Rose Johns with her favorite teacher, um, a woman named uh, Inez Davenport, and they were striking for a better school because the county refused to provide decent education and decent schools for black kids of the county. And interestingly, you know, most people now will think about um, the issues involved in school uh, segregation and in Brown in terms of race and imagine that it's just kind of like atavistic ideas about race. But actually what the white county leaders always said is that black uh, residents weren't paying enough taxes to have better schools in the situation of, of segregation, which was, of course, a total source of frustration to the black parents because they said, you know, how can we make bricks without straw, <laughs> you know, if you don't give us education? How can we get better jobs in order to pay more taxes? But I just raise that because uh, the way that I look at um, Brown and the fight over schools in this book is a little different from what we've heard over the years in that it draws attention to the public finance uh, aspect of racial equality in the schools and shows how even back at the time of the Brown, you know, the, the cases that led up to Brown versus Board of Education and this Prince Edward County uh, student strike was one of the five cases folded into Brown. Um, and the reaction to Brown, these issues of taxes were always foremost. And these white property holders, these very conservative white elites in Virginia who suppressed the vote of all other citizens, really did not want to pay taxes uh, to support the education of any but their own children. So in, in that sense, I think it's a really contemporary story. Um, uh, It has such echoes of what we're hearing now.
0: There is a heated debate going on right now about the origin story of school vouchers that really focuses on this very moment in history. The president of the American Federation of Teachers, Randy Weingarten, recently wrote an op-ed tying school choice to racism. That set off a firestorm. But what actually happened in Virginia?
1: Basically what happened is as soon as this strike, uh, sorry, this um, student strike uh, ended and the students filed a case in federal court with the NAACP to desegregate the schools, uh, in Prince Edward County, Virginia, the um, local elite started talking about ending public education uh, and sending students off to private schools. And so throughout the South, the most extreme segregationists, as these cases wended their way up to uh, the Supreme Court, um, they these Southern segregationist leaders were saying, you know, in the case of Georgia, not only will we end the public... Uh, uh, public education before we'll obey the courts and desegregate, but they actually said blood will flow on the streets. I mean, it was hideous, hideous rhetoric, but really this reckless, you know, uh, desire to destroy education rather than integrate. And what was interesting to me in finding this story and kind of seeing it through new eyes is that Milton Friedman, I learned, had written his first, uh, you could say manifesto. It was buried in an academic collection, but he used it over the years as a manifesto. His first manifesto for school vouchers. In 1955, um, in as the news was coming out of the South, I mean that was after you know several years of reports on these arch segregationists saying they were going to destroy public education and send kids off to private schools. And Friedman wrote this piece uh, advocating school vouchers in that context. Um, and uh, so I don't know, I could I, 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 I'm I'm such a nerd I could really go into weeds on this.
0: <laughs> but I you have my permission to venture deep into the weeds. The argument that school choice proponents seem to be making is that whatever went down in Virginia didn't have much to do with Milton Friedman's vision for school vouchers. But your book about the economist James McGill Buchanan argues that the goal of privatizing schools and the efforts by elites to prevent schools from being desegregated really can't be separated.
1: There is absolutely no question that uh, voucher provision would have become public policy in southern states without the most racist, the most arch-segregationists pushing for it, and they were very clear about that in the documents, and there's just no escaping that. Um, So there's that part, but then the other part that's interesting to me was to see these uh, economists, you know, trained at the Chicago, uh, University of Chicago uh, Economics Department, and Milton Friedman was on the faculty, but two uh, students of the University of Chicago program, uh, James McGill Buchanan, who's my focus, who had a different advisor, and um, a man named Warren Nutter, who was Friedman's first student, uh, start pushing these voucher programs in the South and pushing very opportunistically. And Friedman himself actually came down to um, University of North Carolina in uh, um, uh, uh, 1957 at a conference designed to train these new, you know, um, arch free market economists, and he actually made schools the case in point. So he was really pushing for this in the South at the moment that it's happening, um, and his two students, uh, uh, James Buchanan and Warren Nutter, then actually in 1959 put out a report from this new center that they'd created at the University of Virginia to basically try to keep the fight going after this mass mobilization of white. Mo- and again, they're not you know, these aren't radicals. It's the South, right? It's moderate uh, parents, many of whom were moderate Republicans uh, in the South, moderate white parents, and other civic groups and. De- defense of the schools, and then two federal courts had said that Virginia couldn't um, shut down schools in some localities while leaving them open and others. Ten days after that court ruling, Buchanan and Nutter issue this report calling for a um, Essentially, using the tools of their discipline to argue that it would be fine for Virginia to privatize its schools, and that all—even these these um, business leaders who were saying, "No, we can't do that. We already have one starved public education system. You know, if we start bleeding out these tax monies, we'll destroy it." And so, they actually were using their economic reasoning to say that wouldn't be the case, and it would be fine um, to uh, to sell off these public resources to private. Uh, uh, Providers um, And they directed this report to the state legislatures who were trying to figure out what to do in the wake of the court decision. And the thing that just most put the chill in my bones is that they had a cover letter uh, on one um, uh, report that they sent to a legislator who was an arch. One of you know most avid kind of racists in the Virginia General Assembly, and they said that they were sending this report uh, using the tools of their discipline to analyze the problem, and then they said letting the chips fall where
0: they may. What do you think they meant by that?
1: In other words, what they were doing is using this uh, crisis to advance their, you know, what some people would call neoliberal politics or ultra free market politics or, you know, breaking down the democratic state. There's many ways of describing this, but whether they were or were not. Uh, consciously racist or you know, most motivated by racism. I don't know. And it's kind of not, almost not relevant. The thing is, they did not care at what they could tell would be the impact on black students uh, of their pushing this agenda. And they capture that in saying, letting the chips fall where they may.
0: One of the themes that comes up again and again in the book and feels so relevant to our current moment is how when the ultra-conservatives that you chronicle hit a wall with one of their schemes, like getting rid of public education, they go for plan B, which is basically to alter the structure of government. You describe how Buchanan was proposing removing public education from the Virginia Constitution, but that it was such early days that the word privatization had barely even been coined.
1: right. Right. They wanted to be, yeah, they wanted to take away the requirement that there be public education in the constitution, which would then enable mass privatization. Yeah. It's really it's stunning. I mean, this was the moment, the kind of crucible of the, the modern period in which these, you know, sort of ultra free market property supremacist ideas got their first test. And it is in this situation of the most conservative whites reaction to Brown. And as you said, one of the things that interested me and that I talk about uh, in the book is that, you know, a lot of I think Northerners, in particular, imagined that uh, white Southerners were some kind of unified mass. You know, in in opposing Brown, and that really wasn't true. I mean, most people were e- whites. You know, had been raised in a. a, a culture of Jim Crow, of segregation, of, you know, white supremacy. So it's not like they wanted to, you know, that they embraced the idea of, you know, equality uh, for all citizens and fair treatment, but they were patriotic. They were law-abiding. They understood this was a decision of the highest court in the land. Some of them probably understood, you know, how they'd been uh, cheating and harming black students for so long. And so, you know, in most, uh, many locations, I shouldn't say most, but, you know, many, many localities um, that weren't part of the old plantation belt in Virginia were willing to at least embrace a kind of modest, very gradual desegregation. And these um, uh, the segregationist leaders, who were also the economic conservative leaders of the state, were determined to prevent that. And that's why they used the power of the state government to prevent local communities uh, from doing this. And so there was this amazing mobilization, or I think it's amazing in light of what we're seeing now, uh, a mobilization to save the schools and it started with the labor movement and with uh, some of the more mainline Protestant churches, particularly clergy, particularly uh, women, um, who wanted to, who believed that public education was was essential to a civilized society and uh, they wanted to save public education more than they wanted to preserve segregation.
0: I'm talking to Nancy McLean, the author of Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Rights Stealth Plan for America. Nancy, much of your book is centered on mid-century Virginia, but you basically make the case that the goal of today's conservative libertarians is to take us back there. They don't like government schools. They don't like the taxes that pay for them. They especially don't like teachers' unions. Take us up to the present,
1: they hate the idea of collectives, they would call them, you know, whether it's labor unions, civil rights, women's groups, you know, all of these things they see as terrible, um, and any kind of government provision for people's needs. And instead, they think that ultimately each individual, and then they sneak in the family, because, of course, no individual could live, you know, free of a, being raised by a mother and parents and, you know... Um, you know what I'm saying? Um, but anyway, so they they sneak in really the family, but they basically think that, yes, we should all provide ultimately, like, they're in, in their dream society, every one of us is solely responsible for ourselves and our needs, you know, whether it's for education or it's for retirement security or it's for um, uh, healthcare, uh, just all these things. We should just do ourselves, and they think it's a terrible, coercive injustice that we, together over the 20th century, have looked to government to do these things and have called on and persuaded government to provide things like Social Security or Medicare or Medicaid or, you know, um, uh, to College tuition support, or you know, any of these things. So it's it, it's it, for me it was just such a shock to learn about the ideology of this movement because it is so marginal. I mean, they're they're really infinitesimal as a as a um, demographic in electoral surveys, and yet because of this donor power, they've acquired this overweening um, influence over the Republican Party, which they've turned into a delivery vehicle, even though they have no sentimental attachment to it. Um, Um, And they are pushing through these radical changes that I think most people would find breathtaking if they understood what the ultimate agenda was.
0: I'm a devoted chronicler of our Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, and she shares many of the views that you just described. One of my great frustrations is that people decided early on that DeVos is a dimwit, and so they don't pay any attention to her ideas, where they come from, and, and just how extreme they are. I have to
1: say, I think that um, intellectual uh, condescension is the Achilles heel of the left, <laughs> particularly right now with the Trump administration and Voss and people like that. I totally agree with you. You know, there's a sense that, oh, these people are stupid rather than, no, these people are working with a completely different ethical system from the rest of us, you know, and a different philosophy. But they it's a coherent one, and they are pursuing their goals with very strategic um, calculating uh, tools. And so I'm really, really glad that you that you raised that because I think, you know, people just desperately need to understand that. And that's also why they have gone so much at the teachers unions. And again, this is really has come up overwhelmingly from the, the radical, you know, extreme libertarian right, but it's spread now to the wider right in the Republican Party. But they're not attacking teachers unions, you know, because just they, because they you know, are only concerned about the quality of education and think that teachers are blocking that or something. They, first of all, this is a cause that hated uh public education before there were teachers unions, you know, and we can go back and trace the lineage of that, that, you know, well before there were powerful teachers unions, this cause, you know, people in this libertarian cause were attacking what they would call government schools, you know, they don't even want to say public education, Um, but also uh, at this point, you know, in the the last few decades, they've also attacked teachers unions because in today's America, with so many, you know, uh, industrial jobs uh, destroyed or outsourced sourced or automated, Our main labor unions are teachers' unions, and teachers' unions are really important forces for defending liberal policy in general, things like, you know, Social Security and Medicare, as well as defending public education. And so, in targeting teachers' unions, they're really trying to take out their most important opponents to the kind of plans, the kind of radical plans that they're pushing through. And one of the things that's been most chilling to me, too, is to see how willing Uh, These people on the right are to uh, to insult and debate uh, and uh, and debase teachers, you know, and just, you know, I mean, teachers are... There's so many amazing, good teachers in our country who are doing hard work against the odds, who are touching children's lives, who are so important to them, and this libertarian radical cause um, wants to shame them all, you know, and make the public despise uh, these basically you know, these civil servants um, because they're getting in the way of their plans for radical change, and I just I just find that so um, so disturbing.
0: One of the bleakest sections of the book isn't about mid-century Virginia, but the country of Chile. You chronicle how under the military dictatorship, Chile made radical and unpopular changes, like privatizing its schools. But the real cautionary tale seems to be how the Chilean constitution has become a tool for making sure that people can never change those policies.
1: Yeah, and, and what happened in Chile, and I include a whole chapter on that um, called The Constitution in Locks and Bolts or Constitution of Locks and Bolts, because I think in some ways uh, if people want to understand where this cause is heading, they could look at that Chilean model. And many people, you know, at least Americans on the left, have heard that Milton Friedman had gone to advise the Pinochet uh, dictatorship in 1975 on how to combat uh, the inflation that the country was facing. But almost no one knows the story of James McGill Buchanan, who went in 1980, and his ideas actually were more influential than Friedman's, um, including what you were just talking about in terms of uh, privatizing uh, the education system, privatizing social security. They ended employer contributions to workers' pensions, and, put, and all the pensions went from being government overseen to going to financial sector corporations. You can. Imagine what happened with that, right? People lost their savings um, because the financial corporations acted like, you know, some of the ones we're familiar with here. So it was really a terrible tragedy uh, for Chilean Chilean people on so many fronts. But what was also interesting is Buchanan um, advised the Pinochet government on the constitution that would uh, remain in place after the return to civilian rule. And the phrase that I used, you know, constitution of locks and bolts, actually came from Michelle Bachelet, who was an elected leader. um, And I think it was in 2013, she said, and she had Something like sixty-six percent of the vote, and these, as you said, millions of young people in the street wanting to, you know, um, uh, get rid of this privatized system of education. You know, people had lost their savings in the privatized pension system. You know, there was, the, 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 there was rampant corruption from all the privatization that had gone on, and yet they were still prevented from reversing all of this because of that um, constitution that Buchanan had advised on, that required such large supermajority. Um, to make change, and that also radically overrepresented the conservative property interests against the rest of the country, a kind of um, electoral gerrymandering, you could call it, that it it makes it almost impossible to achieve really fundamental change. And and some people are worrying there that the legitimacy of the uh, political system may be in doubt, the legitimacy of democracy, because it's, it's been unable because of that constitution to respond to, even again, you know, two-thirds of the population calling for serious changes. And um, so that's the kind of thing that this cause would like to see in the
0: United States too. Public education and the efforts to get rid of it are really at the center of your book. But one thing that makes school privatization different than some of the other conservative libertarian causes you mentioned is that Democrats have backed it, too.
1: I think one thing that's happened with so many Democrats is they are afraid to make a credible case about, you know, taxes and and to talk about uh, taxes in a way that would be compelling to people as, you know, what we need for a civilized society. And as a result, they, like Republicans, are so focused on cutting costs and they have also, I think, in some ways kind of drunk the Kool-Aid of um, the people on the right who uh, very self-consciously and strategically in the 1980s realized that they were never going to win this case for school vouchers in the white suburbs because parents in these mostly white suburbs were very happy with their schools. They don't want school vouchers. You know, why should they change what they had? They were paying taxes, supporting these schools, and they by and large liked their schools. So they actually started talking in the 1980s about non-traditional alliances was the phrase, um, and they started going after people who were dissatisfied with the quality of their education. Of course, that was um, overwhelmingly uh, urban African-American parents after metropolitan desegregation. plans were overruled in um, the court case Milliken versus Bradley and so it is kind of they so I think they've really exploited um, the understandable uh, anxiety of Black parents about the quality of schools and, the, the you know, what their children are experiencing. Um, so I think that's one uh, part of it. But the other part with the Democrats that's very sad, I think, too, is that once the spigots of, of, of um, corporate finance of elections opened and Democrats are trying to stay competitive with Republicans in this, they have gone overwhelmingly to the financial sector for contributions. And there are so many hedge fund billionaires who are interested in transforming the education industry because it is such a a vastly Um, a huge potential source of cash, right, that could go into new private schools. And so there's this whole education industry that's developed, and um, a lot of Democrats are really connected to that agenda. I mean, Cory Booker would be, you know, a case in point, and I'm sure, you know, you know about his work, but many other Democrats, and, you know, Obama and Arne Duncan and all these other folks, um, uh, I think, are destroying your party's own base and capacity to fight back against this this horrible anti-democratic agenda by attacking uh, public education and teachers unions as they have.
0: I want to end on an inspiring note. I want to go back to where we started this conversation with the African-American students who walked out of their high school in Prince Edward County, Virginia in 1951. Their story isn't widely known, but you argue that even the way they protested points to something we've forgotten about that period.
1: One of the things that was so interesting for me uh, researching this book and thinking about the issues of the past in light of what's going on in our world is that I, I saw that some of the silos that we can get in today um, uh, didn't really make sense when you look at the past. So, for example, I really think that it was the labor movement and its tremendous successes um, in the 1930s and 40s um, and, you know, at the beginning of the 1950s that really inspired these students. You know, why did they Stop the strike. Well, because they could see, even in their own state, Virginia, which was the right to work state, that they could see that the labor movement was was um, people were organizing collectively. They were using their power at the workplace. They were using this tool of a strike, and they were winning, and they were getting results. So these kids were really inspired by that, and that's why they chose the strike um, as a method.
0: That was Nancy McLean. She's the author of a new book called Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Rights Stealth Plan for America. I can't recommend it highly enough. McLean is also a professor of history at Duke University in North Carolina, which, as she points out, used to be a pretty moderate state. Until next time, I'm Jennifer Berkshire, and this is Have You Heard.